Hello. This is the recording of the eighth edition of my semi-regular Twitter space sessions. Today's episode was all about hiking, but specifically the hike across Great Britain that I did with my hiking buddy Becky back in the summer of 2019. We're chattering today about why I chose to do a hike of such length, how we planned it, the high and low points of the journey, and ponder on how people willingly do ultramarathons. Usual disclaimer, be aware this conversation took place over the phone and is then recorded directly from playback on Twitter. I noticed there's a few biffs and bangs in the first few minutes, but they settle down. Also, a shout out to somebody, and you know who you are, because there are very few people who do call me, and one of them I was already on a Twitter spaces with, who tried calling me at the very end of this recording. And when this happens, it causes my audio quality to drop considerably, for reasons known only to Android. Anyway... Hope you enjoy it. Hello. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a fortnightly series looking at unfamiliar places around the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture beyond the brochure. Good grief. Hello. There we go, that took your time. It took forever. It was because I had uninstalled and reinstalled my Twitter app since our last space, and so it had changed all my permissions. I apologise for that. But I think it, it yeah. fixed my technical issues I was having earlier. So, Well, that's, that's one thing. That's a good thing. Yes, and we're starting just on time still, because you came in early, so mm. that was brilliant. Yes, I came in early just so I had it up and I could just invite you as a co-host and that just took a longer than I thought. Yeah, I think we I think we still haven't broken our streak of not starting a space with good grief. It's a catchphrase. <laughs> I was just about to say perhaps that should be your catchphrase. <laughs> what I've learned from doing all of my podcasting and writing out my episodes beforehand and things like that is I have an over-enthusiastic use of the word actually. I have noticed. <laughs> and an even bigger use of the word anyway. <laughs> I've noticed that actually, as well. <laughs> actually and anyway are my two um, biggest biggest words, I think, if, if you were to um, do a word cloud of my... In the days when Wordle was word clouds, if you did a word cloud of my podcast, you'd probably find the word actually is one of the most common. I'm now quite tempted to try and find out if there's a way that we can do that, because I'd be interested to see what your main themes of your podcast are, apart from anyway and actually. But anyway, in, in the old days, because I did it with my poetry and I actually had a, a T-shirt printed with a word cloud of my poem, of the most popular word of my poems. Oh, and um, yeah, there, there used to be a website called Wordle that did it. You could just load in, copy and paste in all manner of text and it would give you a word cloud. I used to use it a lot of work. I would imagine that it's either got a different name now or has jumped quite far down the Google rankings. I... Engines exist. <clears throat> I, I suspect it is no more and hasn't been for a number of years. Yeah. Anyway, um, shall we start talking actually about your hike? Yeah, I suppose. Um, I'd better do a little introduction for people that might listen to know who the heck I am. So I'm Victoria Pearson, but you can call me V. And I'm here today, as you know, with the lovely Barefoot Backpacker, who is RTW Barefoot here on Twitter. We chat every couple of weeks about various different aspects of the Barefoot Backpackers travel style, which essentially boils down to Barefoot and Beyond the Brochure. Last time, though, we were talking about hiking, um, specifically hiking Barefoot, I think. Um, but today we are focusing on a specific hike that Barefoot Backpacker and their friend Becky did in, back in 2019. So do you want to tell us what that hike was? I'm impressed there's all manner of bees in this in this introduction. And so I everything is, everything is bee. I'm very impressed with myself that I didn't stumble over any of that. <laughs> Indeed. I, I, and I appreciate it. So what was the question? I can't remember. Um, um, so what was the big hike that you did that we're talking about today? Right. So I did, with my friend Becky, a hike across the island of Great Britain from the furthest eastern point to the furthest westerly point. 
Okay, and you've told me this already, but for our listeners, that is different to hiking across the UK, yeah? Yes, Great Britain is essentially the big island that makes up the UK. I did some research as to how big it was, relatively speaking, and I think I'm right in saying that Great Britain is about 86% of the UK. So it's it's like it's the big island. It's yeah. most of the UK, but not all of it. So and you didn't do the traditional lands into general growths. You went from the easterly most point to the westerly most point. Yeah. How far is that exactly? Um, well, in a straight line, it's about 430 miles or 700 kilometers. That straight line involves going over a large bit of water, which I was going to say. I assume that you couldn't go in a straight line, though. So, do you know how many miles you ended up hiking in the end? Nine hundred and fifty-two. It was definitely not a straight line. That that is a long way. (laughs) (laughs) And how long did that take you then to hike all that way? We took fifty-seven days in total. We were planning on taking more, and when we did our preliminary preparations to work out how long it would take and how much stuff we needed to attack and all of that we estimated it would take about two and a half months but that was working on the basis of walking 15 miles a day and on having more rest days than we eventually took oh so you did it quicker than you expected we did it far quicker than we expected we did it because we were in the event we averaged about we averaged about 15 or 16 miles a day if you didn't count the rest if you counted the rest days if we didn't count the rest days and talked about only the days that we hiked on we were averaging about 18 miles a day we went a lot quicker than we thought we would and I was going to ask you actually was that you hiking hard every day or like did you have days where you didn't hike at all and you took complete rests or did you have like specific days where you'd hike really hard and other days where you'd just stroll along yes I mean we had only six days of complete rest and one of those was involuntary because Becky came off worse than a battle between her and a dodgy meat pasty oh, no. <laughs> um, but apart from that we only had we only had about five days rest. one of them was in Kingsland at the end of the first section which we'd planned to do one of them was the walk took us past where we lived in Nottinghamshire so we had a, a day's rest there then we had a day's rest before we started the Pennine Way and then we had a day's rest in Glasgow. Now, okay, we not all... very many days, considering how many that you actually spent hiking. Then. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, we did take a couple of what you might call half day hikes. So, for example, the last day we had on the Pennine Way was just seven miles to the end. And then we stayed in the pub for the rest of the day. And there was one the day after we finished the West Highland Way. We, we started hiking about four o'clock. So we had the morning and a lot of the afternoon casually resting and then we just set off for a, a short hike afterwards and then camped up by a lock. Well, um, it, um, I can actually ask you about that so um, on the days where you weren't having a specific rest day where yes. do you stay because I'm kind of imagining you in a bivy bag next to the A5 but you must have needed <laughs> proper accommodation sometimes where did you yeah. stay normally on your hike? Well the thing is we, we I mean we took tents with us we took a whole raft of camping equipment with us and our idea was to camp out wild camp as much as possible. Um, I calculated that we actually ended up wild camping 15 times together. Becky did a couple more when I wasn't, but we'll come on to that in a minute. Interestingly, six of the last seven nights were wild campings. Those 15 nights included, we camped by a marsh in Norfolk. We camped on the side of a couple of hills. We camped in a woodland a couple of times. We camped by the side of locks. Uh, at one point, we also camped so on a- sort of having to stay in a supermarket car park or anything like that then uh no although one of the nights that becky camped and i didn't was just outside peterborough where she basically camped in a bush (laughs) well usually you do travel alone we've spoken about that on spaces before so what made you decide to do this particular hike with somebody else um accountability i think mainly partly because i think I thought she might actually want to because she's quite an avid hiker. She's, you know, always climbing mountains. And that's probably what she's doing right now, actually climbing a mountain. And this is the secondary reason that it thought it might actually be useful to take along someone that kind of knew what they were doing. Um, so and this uh, relatively long hike then? Oh, uh, it was my first long hike. I, it's not necessarily hers, but it was certainly the first time I'd done any kind of 
big multi-day hiking. But I also mm. wanted to, also had to have near me someone that was actually good at organising. Because yeah. one thing I'm not, it's organised. Yeah, we have spoken a little bit about that as well before, haven't we? Um, that organisation is a bit difficult for you. Um, yeah. Did it, did it not drive you crazy, though? Because you're quite a spontaneous person and it sounds like Becky's quite an organised planner. How did your two travel styles mesh together? Yeah, because although Becky's more organised than me, the thing about hiking a lot is that you don't necessarily know where you're going to end up because you don't know how long you're going to be hiking for. So a couple mm. of the nights in Norfolk, for instance, we we cut short our hike because she was having problems with her um, shoes, actually. Um, so one of the days we only did nine miles and we, we wandered into a village, which I think was Haysborough, and went to the pub, obviously, after about nine miles and just to try and decide what to do next. And then we ended up chatting to someone and we ended up camping in their garden that night. Was it that night or was it the next night when we ended up camping in the garden of a dementia care home again after a conversation in a pub? Um, so <laughs> although it's organised, although we had kind of we knew where we were going, we were also flexible enough to go. Well, we don't actually know where we're going to be spending the night, but we're going to be spending it in roughly this area. Yeah. So the, your two different camping styles and hiking travel styles sort of balanced each other out in the end. Yes, yes. Um, and a lot, some of the times it was a case of we'll just get to somewhere and decide this is a good place to camp. That's how we ended up camping on a beach because yeah. we got to, we got there about half past six in the evening, maybe seven o'clock. And it was still light enough to go on for a couple more hours. But mm. we weren't sure that we'd find a decent place to camp. So we were on the beach. thought, yeah, this will do. So we camped up just because we were there and it, it made perfect sense. As it turned out, we were right. And the, the path later on was very hilly. And yeah. we, we didn't, that next morning, we didn't really see a flat area that we could have camped in. So we, we, we got that one right. Um, yeah. It's a very strange beach, actually. It was partly full of um, Ministry of Defence debris and the sand made noises when you walked on it. What kind of noises? Well, I mean, it's called the Singing Sand Beach, but it was kind of squeaky. Oh, that sounds like a bit of a sensory nightmare to me, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it was also full of jellyfish. Oh, that that's even scarier. Jellyfish are scary. <laughs> they sting. Um, you said a second ago that you've never done a hike quite this long before. Did you have to, like, train to do this? Did you spend any time training or did you just rock up and think, ah, it's just walking? I mean, basically, I rocked up. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> uh, all I'd done previously were, you know, a couple of two-day, two-night hikes in places like Vanuatu. And that was very different anyway, because that was slow, that was methodical, I had a guide. So I wasn't in charge of anything, I just followed. Um, mm. To prepare for this hike, all I did was spend one night wild camping alone in the Peak District on Kinder Scout, which I went in April. I'd never used that tent before, so it went about as well as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> is that the one where your tent yeah. essentially collapsed in the night? It's not so much that it collapsed in the night, it's just that I, I, I couldn't put it up properly in the first place. My hands were too cold. Um, it was not a pleasant night, and there's a video of it on my YouTube channel. It's one of the few videos I have on my YouTube channel. So that's um, probably a top um, camping and hiking tip, is to have a go at your equipment while you're warm and comfortable at home before you yeah. start yep that was basically my take out from that entire um video clip that was kind of one of my rules of, of hiking and camping always make sure you know how your equipment works mm -hmm. um there were other issues with that hike as well because i um well i'd taken a camping stove and i'd taken camping gas and i'd taken food to eat but i was too cold to eat it which was just as well because what i didn't take was anything to light the gas with oh no <laughs> anyway and 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 my electrics died overnight, so you know, it was it was all in all quite a good quite a good little trek that one. Um, we also go ahead with the big one. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> bloody mindedness. At that point, I was already committed. Um, we also did me and Becky a couple of day hikes together, including again one in the Peak District on on Kinder Scout, and this was notable because it was during a named storm. We had snow. We had gusts of wind of 50 miles an hour plus, and I'm 100% convinced I got a flu-like booger from that 
uh, weekend away that we had that stopped me going to Japan a couple of weeks later. Oh, no. Um, but I suppose, though, if you were going in nicer weather, that's actually really good training, because if you can handle hiking through that, you can handle anything, right? Yes. Um, so, against your nature, but you must have had to pre-plan your route a little bit, because, as we discussed, you can't just draw a straight line across the map and go for it. There's stuff in the way. So, was your route sort of all on public footpaths, or did you find any of your routes sort of blocked by public land, uh, private land, sorry, or unexpected obstructions on your route that weren't on your map or anything like that well that's one of the only things we did actually plan and that was the route um we wanted to make sure that we could do the entire thing as much as possible on public footpaths because mm. what, you, what you get when a lot of people do things like the land center john Groats route is they always walk on the roads and roads are boring and roads are mm. roads aren't very pleasant to walk along and they're noisy and they're they're polluted whereas what we wanted to do was go along as many public footpaths as we could, which is one reason why the journey was 952 miles. We could have done it shorter if we would stick to the roads. Yeah, um, but that would have been harder on your bodies as well, though, wouldn't it, walking on concrete all the time and things like that? Yes, yes. It I mean, did you do this one barefoot as well? or? Well, well, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll come on to that in a minute. We'll come back to that later. Yes. Um, I did want to ask you, though, about... I wanted to talk about public footpaths. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you some more about that because... Um, We've got some weird trespass laws in Great Britain as well. And so sticking to the public footpaths is kind of quite important. Um, yeah. did, that, did those sorts of laws make it a lot more difficult for you to hike and wild camp in Britain? It, the laws are slightly different in Scotland. But in England, you're not really supposed to wild camp anywhere. Um, mm. Bear in mind that we are two middle-class, middle-aged white people. We could yeah. probably get away with it all. Mm. But... But, but regardless of that, we still tried to make sure that we were as hidden as possible. So we wild camped a couple of times in Norfolk, like once was, they were both actually effectively on the marshes, just next to small farm type lanes, like two or three miles from the nearest, uh, nearest village. I mean, we still got bird watchers and dog walkers and joggers passing by, but they didn't seem to <laughs> mither us. We didn't mither them. Um, the only thing I'm worried about thinking in a marsh. Yeah, that was one of my worries, but hey, yeah, we're still alive. Um, <laughs> what, what the only things that I can think of in terms of blockages were cows, because we neither of us like cows. Um, also, mm, a field of horses once. Uh, we also had a huge metal gate on a country lane in Norfolk that was just in the way, and we had to climb over it, which is not very pleasant for someone like me. Yeah, uh, it must yeah. make climbing over gates quite difficult, especially if the weather isn't great. Well, the weather was actually pretty good on that day, and it was bright sunshine, it was quite warm. Uh, it was just that the gate was about a metre taller than me. It was one of those, um, you know, like wall bar type gates that you would climb as a kid. Are the ones um, on the railways, tracks and things like that? Yeah, that sort of thing, except this was in the middle of the road on a bridge. Uh, and we couldn't cross the bridge by going into the river because the, the banks were too steep. Mm. Um, so, yes. So that was fun. Uh, there was also a we, we took a footpath that may not have been a footpath. It was a dead railway line and we got to a river and there was no bridge. Um, so we had to backtrack for a, a mile or so. Uh, and then uh, what else did we have? As I say, we had a couple of um, went through a couple of fields in Leicestershire because there were animals in the way of the footpath that we didn't want to cross. <laughs> um but in scotland there's there's a the right to roam is a bit more free um mm. so although we stuck to footpaths most of the time um there were a couple of instances especially towards the end in the odd Merkin peninsula where there may have been a footpath but it was quite theoretical and i'm not sure the last <laughs> time someone took it there there is a there is a picture that i took of becky where she's walking through some ferns on the footpath where the ferns are about as high as her backpack is Oh, no. So you must have been quite worried about getting lost then. We had maps, uh, not paper maps. Granted, we had digital maps, but we also had like two or three phones between us. So mm -hmm. we both had the um, that technical that that technical ability to see where we were. And obviously we had GPS and stuff like that. And also mm -hmm. the thing about the UK is that you're never actually that far from civilization. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, you mentioned... Um 
hiking in Vanuatu a minute ago when I asked you if you'd done a big hike before. How mm. does hiking in the UK compare to hiking somewhere like that? Is it wildly Vanu- different? Vanuatu's warmer. I Maybe. don't know if you mean that as, as better or worse because it is warm here today and I would hate to be hiking in it. I think I'd rather mm. hike in drizzle. Well, it was drizzle here and it's not particularly warm up here. So, uh, mm. yeah. joy of Scotland. Um, it's, <laughs> it's slightly different because the thing with my hikes in Vanuatu is that they were very much more. I was I was hiking with, you know, people who lived locally. Um, mm. So they knew where they were going. They knew what they were doing. And I didn't have a map. So I was entirely in their hands for that. Um, See, that sounds quite Britain, scary to me. Um, but I would imagine that it's um, also quite scary being fully in charge of those things. And if you get lost, it's your own fault and you've got to get yourself out of it. So, Yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing with Vanuatu, um, Vanuatu specifically, because that's where I've done a couple of hikes. I hiked across two islands. Um, but the thing is, the islands aren't very big. They're just a bit, well, one of them was full of rainforest. And the thing with rainforest is that it kind of looks the same wherever you are. So you need to be with a guide to make sure you don't get lost in the rainforest. Uh, mm. And the other one was over an island that was basically two volcanoes. So, again, there's the situation of you could get lost and end up falling down one. Yeah, that's that's mildly terrifying. But I yep. suppose in the UK when you're hiking, like you're never too far away from a town or a village or something like that. Um, never too far away from medical attention and you're never encountering big hazards from nature i mean cows notwithstanding yeah yeah i mean cows are one thing uh sheer cliffs i mean that's the biggest danger the biggest danger is falling mm. off uh, yeah. of which there are quite a few on the hike uh, and the other... i would have imagined that you would have avoided cliff sides as much as possible because of your dyspraxia uh, i did that involved me walking on the other side of becky <laughs> at least you've got a nice cushion if you fall it's fine <laughs> yes um the only other thing is the weather um the weather's mm-hmm. the biggest issue i think that we had um on the hike um because british summertime is not particularly summery sometimes especially mm-hmm. when they're in the mountains and of course you never quite know what you're going to get in terms of british summertime is it going to hail and thunder all day is it going to bake your skin off nobody knows no, I mean, on and on the hike, we had, I mean, the first week was during a heat wave. So we were walking, walking along the Norfolk coast path, which is a very easy path, actually, because it's basically it's flat. Mm. Um, and it was a good introduction to the hike. So there's us starting anew with big, heavy backpacks, not really being fit enough to do this. And our first hike was along basically 60 odd miles of very flat countryside. Uh, yeah, um, that's probably a good warm-up to start your hike, yes. isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it was, I mean, that week was a heat wave, but that was quite good in a way because it just meant we, we got used to it and we were enjoying it. We were enjoying the weather. Mm. Um, so I suppose, though, you do have to take a lot of stuff, like in case it rains, in case it's really hot, you want sunscreen, you want rain max but you've got other stuff that you need as well you've got your food your drink your tents your oh i know you said you had digital maps but you and becky are both travel bloggers as well so you must have needed like cameras or something like that as well like how do you carry all of that stuff well uh i mean i think i weighed my back after the event i weighed my backpack and it came out at about 19 to 20 kilograms um so we were carrying quite a lot of stuff. There's a couple of things to bear in mind. One is that obviously in the UK, if we if we run out of things, it's easy to get. So we were carrying food with us, but we always knew that we could restock at various points along the route. So we didn't have to carry. It's not like we're hiking in you know the Appalachian Trail in the USA where we basically have to carry everything for like three weeks or what have you. Um, we, were, we, we tried to carry about six or seven days worth of food, but we knew that we could just top up whenever we needed to. So it never became a problem. Uh, same with water. We had water bottles, but, you know, filling up with water was easy. The other thing to bear in mind is that when you're hiking 57 miles, it doesn't matter what you're wearing, because whatever you're wearing is going to end up smelling and dirty. So our way around that was just not to wear very many clothes. 
Um, I'm not I don't mean that we were hiking naked. What I mean is we didn't have many spare pairs of clothes. So we didn't we didn't have a lot of of weight in the backpacks that were clothing related. Whereas when I go traveling and backpacking, you know, around the world, staying in B&Bs and hostels and what have you, then I'll take like four or five days worth of clothing. I took more clothing to my recent trip to France than I did on the 57 day hike. Mm. Uh, yeah, I suppose, like you say, after a while, you don't smell yourself anyway. And if it's just the two of you out there hiking away, it's not really going to matter that much. Um, oh, but how did you decide like what you absolutely had to take versus what you could just rough it without? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we'd made a list of things that we needed to take, but a lot of those things were practical rather than um, luxurious. Yeah, um, but how, how did you do things like keep your phones charged for your digital maps and your photography and stuff like that? We both had power banks, but also we made ample and copious use of things like pubs and campsites. So after about nine miles of hiking, we'd stop for lunch in a pub and we'd take the opportunity to charge our phones. That must have got quite expensive, though, lunching in pubs and stuff like that. Did you ever cost out what the trip cost you? I think Becky did. I, I certainly didn't. But I think Becky may have done. You've got to bear in mind that that's balanced by the fact that our accommodation costs were quite low. Yeah, yeah. I suppose if you are sleeping in a bush, then that yeah. does save you some money. Yeah. So I mean, even when we were staying in campsites, those campsites weren't more than about six or seven pound a night. Yeah. So that's a, a lot less than obviously it would be if we were staying in B&Bs all the time. Mm. So relatively speaking, we had more budget that we could spend on food and drink. And, but and even then, we, we didn't push it. So we, we would normally just have, you know, like I would have one beer and Becky would have a, you know, a, soda water or something it wouldn't be terribly expensive it would just be enough to charge our phones give us a bit of rest after nine miles and it was always nine miles we worked it out it was in there we had we had a session on uh sort of midway on the pennine way where literally we would be walking for nine miles and then stop for lunch we didn't plan it that way that was just what how it turned out it was always nine miles um you get into a rhythm then i suppose and i guess as well the expense is worth it because you kind of do need the extra calories that you get from a decent hot meal yeah. yes. when you're walking for 57 days like we it's important to look after yourself we calculated how many calories we would need on a daily basis oh really um, when you say we do you mean becky i mean that becky calculated it for both of us yes <laughs> Um, I can't remember how many she needed, but she said that I would need 5,500 calories a day to maintain my weight. Oof, that would mean that you'd have to eat pretty much constantly, surely, grazing along. Well, I mean, I never made it. And at one point I did actually have to get new trousers because my old trousers were quite mm. loose. But what you've got to remember about hiking is that because you've got a restricted amount of stuff you can carry, what you carry matters and a yeah. lot of hiking food is very calorie intensive. So stuff yeah. that we were taking to eat were things like um, energy bars and cereal bars. Uh, they were things like chocolate, but not chocolate bars, you know, sort of things like um, M&Ms and peanuts, covered chocolate, yeah. that sort of thing. What I was eating as well was things like couscous, because couscous is really easy to cook. Becky tended to go more for the um, pasta and sauce options, you know, those packets. Yeah. And we also both had, I don't know if there's a name for them. There's like these camping meals that you can buy from camping shops and outdoor stores. That you oh, either, to MREs, aren't they? I don't know. You either fill them with boiling water and then shake them around a bit, or you put them in boiling water and let them boil. Mm. Um, but they're quite, they, they have things like chicken ticker and, 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 um, spaghetti bolognese and chocolate cake bizarrely yeah, like dehydrated um, food almost yeah, yeah essentially yeah it's, it's what they're always advertised on the on the front package pictures as being what you take when you're hiking a mountain um, yeah. and they're quite calorie intensive as well and they're also very easy to carry so that's the yeah, sort of thing. Okay. So, when, yeah so when i on, on the days for instance i in my backpack i had um, pockets kind of on the bottom strap that went over to the front so I could easily just unzip the side pocket and pull out you know something like a you know a, a cereal bar or yeah. beef jerky beef jerky was quite popular for me I, I 
went through quite a few packets of beef jerky because it's it's easy to eat. I, it's something to eat and it's energy food. Yeah. Calorie dense and just there and ready for you whenever. Yes. And quite light as well. All of the foods that you've said are, are foods that are dehydrated, really, and that are yeah. quite light and easy to carry. So, yeah. and, that, and that's important when you've got a heavy backpack. Um, yeah. And so, also, none of it. Also, none of it needs refrigerating, and none of it goes off, and none of it is. Yeah, it's uh, not. Of it is it? Mm. Um. So we said we'd cycle back to this later. So I'll cycle back now. You often hike and run, um, travel barefoot. Did yeah. you do that for this hike? <sighs> it's quite funny, actually, because everyone assumed that I was going to. Um, it was like when I raised the question, with, well, I didn't even raise the question with Becky. Becky just assumed that I would. It was just a given. Um, no, I, I, I think I worked out, I did about about a quarter of it barefoot. And the reason it's very off-brand for you. There's a reason for that. We are in this country very fond of gravel. And I don't like gravel. I don't like gravel at the best of times. I certainly don't like gravel when I'm walking with a 20 kilogram backpack. Um, so, yes. So while I was barefoot where I could be, and one thing that Becky did say is that I was happier. I seemed happier and I seemed more joyful when I was barefoot and able to be barefoot. But um, for a fair amount of the hike, I couldn't be because the terrain itself did not lend itself well to being barefoot. Mm -mm. Um, if your feet are not used to being in shoes though did that mean that you were more prone to blisters when you were wearing shoes well no because most of the time i was wearing footwear it was where i was wearing minimalist sandals which i would normally wear anyway so it was it was fine um the only time when i had to wear closed shoes was for a bit of the pennine way and that was for reasons that we've discussed on previous spaces that are really quite icky well, I was going to say, did you uh, injure your feet at all on this hike? <laughs> maybe. Maybe, <laughs> may, may, maybe there was the, yeah, <laughs> the one take out of, of hiking barefoot is don't run. Um, <laughs> especially when you're dyspraxic, because then you, you, you scrape your top of your foot on the pavement because you, because you just don't, can't really judge where the pavement is. And, and hey, Preston, you end up one toenail less. Um, Ouch. How did you carry on with walking after you'd hurt your feet, though? That must have been really difficult for you, because it wasn't near the end of the hike either, was it? It, was it, was, it wasn't even hot. It was just before halfway. It was about a third of the way through. Uh, it was conveniently close to where I lived. Um, so <laughs> It would have been very easy to just give up then. Well, what made you yeah, Becky, Becky assumed that I was going to. Um, it was just before we started the Pennine Way. So we were walking through Derbyshire. It happened in a village called Long Eaton, which is direct bus from my house. Um, not Long Eaton, Little Eaton, rather. So I then went home just to rest it and patch it up. And Becky continued along the Derwent Heritage Path. And when she got to Edale, she just assumed that she would just carry on. She met a couple of friends in Edale anyway. And she was going to do the next day or two with them, regardless of whether I was there or not. But she assumed I wouldn't turn up. And then I turned up. Um mm -hmm. It was annoying. It didn't hurt. It was just annoying. I can remember seeing it on Instagram at the time and thinking that it looked very painful. I think you might be being a bit brave there. I don't remember it hurting. I remember being grumpy about it because I thought it was going to get infected and I would die. But I don't <laughs> remember it actually hurting. I mean, yeah, that would make you a bit grumpy, wouldn't it? <laughs> um... So, yeah, um, what was quite amusing about that is that uh, my friend Sarah, who is in my house, um, gave me some tips and advice about it. And one of the tips was keep it dry. Yeah. We then ended up on the Pennine Way. And at lunchtime on the Pennine Way, it started raining. That was the Monday. It stopped raining on the Friday. <laughs> so but you did really well at keeping it dry then. I kept it really dry for the first 10 minutes of every day. And then it kind of I might as well have just stayed in sandals. Um but you managed to get away without dying of a toe infection. In managed to get away without dying of a toe infection. I managed to get away without dying of a finger infection when I sliced it open on a knife while we were cooking in a in a in a 
it wasn't even an Airbnb. It was a future Airbnb. We, we, we were hiking in Scotland and we were just resting a while. And this, we ended up chatting to this lady who passed us by and said we didn't have anywhere to sleep tonight. And she said, well, my friend is, is about to open an Airbnb. Do you want to test it for us? Oh, um, well, so we said, handy. it was handy. It was, it was, it was, <laughs> it did not go well. Um, it, oh, I was about to say, it sounds like the kindness of strangers did you quite well over the course of oh, your trip. The, the, what, everything that happened, well, the, two incidents happened, neither of which were either their fault or our fault. It was just That's one of those things. One of them was that they had really sharp and new knives. And I, we were cooking, I think we were cooking a bolognese and I was cutting the onions and the peppers. And I said, this is a really sharp knife. I'm going to do myself an injury. And Becky said, no, you're not. Don't be silly. And an onion later, uh, it, it stopped bleeding after six hours. <laughs> the, the other incident that night was um, it was a really weird setup in the sense that the living room was a separate door to the, to the bedrooms. So you had a door, then you had a, a, a stairs up to the bedrooms, then you had another door downstairs that went into the living and kitchen area, which was lockable. Mm. And um, we, we went to bed and we locked. We, well, <laughs> the door shut and locked and we thought that was fine until we realized the key was inside oh no um <laughs> fortunately we managed to get around that by um the people that owned it basically living next door and it was about 11 o'clock in the evening and they were still working so we said uh we've got a problem here and the only way they could resolve the problem was by breaking one of the windows in the door oh no i bet they were so glad that they had offered you a place for the night <laughs> yes yeah, First well, I mean, bleed for six hours all over the furniture, and now this. <laughs> in actual, I mean, they actually said it was it was good that we'd done that because it meant that they realised that they needed to cut new keys. Yeah, yeah. which they wouldn't, which they wouldn't have thought before, and so we that was a <laughs> that was <laughs> a good outcome on all sides for that. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so we've mentioned getting lost we've briefly mentioned getting lost we've mentioned getting, getting lost again we, 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 we think about getting lost is that we didn't get lost that much yeah um we can just about read maps between us <laughs> the, only, the only problem that we had well no the only problem that i had at one point the thing with the british summer and as i say there was about four and a half days where it basically rained constantly on the pennine way and the thing mm. with hiking in the countryside along footpaths is that they're not necessarily um, paved. Yeah. And when it's been raining for that length of time, you get a lot of mud, gets very boggy. Mm. And, and you asked about hiking barefoot. That was actually better to hike barefoot along some of that because uh, then you don't get the instance of the mud uh, sucking your shoes off. Yeah, or sticking to your shoes yeah. and like weighing them down as well. Yeah. And it makes it easier to wash them afterwards. Um, mm. But where was I going with? Oh, yes. The thing with mud is that um, sometimes it hides the path quite well. And there was mm. an incident later on on the Pennine Way where Becky and the people that we were hiking with at the time were about three hours ahead of me for reasons. And... I was going over this muddy field and they'd warned me in advance that it was a muddy field. Um, they'd sent me a message saying, just make sure that, you know, <laughs> you find the path. And the trouble is I couldn't find the path. And then my GPS stopped working very well. Oh, so I, was yeah. like, well, I, I, I know I need to get to this hill with a cairn on the top, but which hill is it? And, and yeah. why when I'm pointing this way, does it, does my GPS insist that I'm facing Southwest when I'm clearly not? Um, <laughs> So that was a bit of a, a fraught time when I was basically lost on a moorland. I can um, imagine. So between that and broken windows and injuries and all that, what was your lowest like emotional and altitudinal point of your trip? Um, that would have been on those um, early days of the Pennine Way because it was raining constantly. Um, I was wearing shoes, which I didn't like because of the toenail incident. Um I was carrying a heavy backpack. And the thing about those early days on the Pennine Way is that, and this may surprise people listening, the footpaths that we took 
were generally through quite pretty scenery and, you know, close to civilization. That bit of the Pennine Way was the most remote bit of the entire hike. Mm. And the reason it was remote was because although, you know, technically speaking, if you stand on one of the two on the moorlands, you could you could see Manchester, you can see Sheffield, you can see Leeds and Huddersfield. You could see them all. So they were just there. But you couldn't because you got on top of them all and, and all you could see was, well, you could see your foot because it was basically three days of cloud, mist, fog. It was just constant. And even if we could see that part of the that part of the Peak District, that part of the, 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 the low Pennines, there's nothing there. It's bleak. It's 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 empty. It's it's the it's for those of you looking on a map, we're talking Black Hill in the Northern Peak District. We're talking Marsden Moor and we're talking Saddleworth Moor. And then we're talking Blackstone Edge. And there is literally there's nothing there. It's just shrubland. It's just endless moorland. You can't see anything. There's nothing to look at. Everything is grey. Everything is boggy, especially when it's been raining. So you're just plodding along, squelch, plod, 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 squelch. You can't see where you're going. It's just the path curves, the path bends around, and it's just slightly soul destroying. There's there's one point. Uh, what, what the hell is it? I can't remember. What, I can't remember what it's called. But there's a tower just outside um, um, Hebden Bridge, and it's huge. It's about 120 meters high, and we couldn't see it. There was that much fog. We could not see the tower. Even when we got there and walked up the tower, all we could see was the bottom of the tower. It's a ridiculous weather. That that was the most, that was the lowest point. That was the most soul destroying point. Just those couple of days. Once we got out of the Peak District area and out of the Lower Pennines and into more like the Yorkshire Dales, the weather slightly improved. Although we then did have a day on at um, climbing up Penigent, one of the mountains in Yorkshire, where it was so wet that on the trig point at the top of Penigent we could not see anything other than the trig point. And a, we were hiking with several people, quite a few of Becky's friends had joined us at that point. And one of them, their phone died because it was so wet and the phone just got drenched. Oh my God. Um, yes. Um, so how do you motivate yourself then to get up and keep plodding and squelching through grey fog where you can't see anything day after day with a heavy backpack and you're just not feeling it anymore? Like, how did you make yourself keep going? I mean, partly it's the accountability. Uh, it's a, I've said I'm going to do this, therefore I'm going to do this. Partly it's the feeling that it's not going to get any worse than this. And partly it's also the knowledge that I can quit at any point. I'm just, no, I'm not going to. So it's, it's, it's kind of like that. It would be very easy to quit now. It would be very easy to stop. Therefore... I'm going to carry on until I've absolutely got no choice because I will always have an option. It's not like I'm, you know, I'm going down a path where there is only one exit for three days. It's like literally we would be crossing a very bleak, but still a main road every couple of hours. So we knew we could always stop. And we mm. didn't um, because we had a mission to do. We, we set out to do this hike and we damn well made sure we were going to do it. And, you and think about like having someone else with you to do it as yeah. well, like an accountability oh, yeah. partner. Oh, absolutely. It helps that we were sort of effectively encouraging each other to go on. Did yeah. your personal lows happen to coincide with each other's or were you like a little emotional seesaw in that way in that you were having an up day when they were having a down day? Honestly, I'm not sure I asked. <laughs> um, and also, I'm not that convinced that I said that I was having a down day that often. Um, we we did, at the very start of the hike, we did both say that we were not exactly the most mentally stable of people um, and that we would have down days. Yeah. So we were both aware of each other's um, mental health. Mm. And we also made each other aware that we didn't have to I know this is going to sound like a strange thing to say, but we didn't have to hike together. So if one of us felt like we needed to go off somewhere on our own, then it was quite fine that we would just go off somewhere on our own. There was no there was no um, hassle about that. There was no 
bad vibes about that. In fact, there were just positively good vibes about that. And we did that. Um, and there were a couple of times when I stayed in a B&B rather than camped because um, I was I needed the I need to be on my own and I need to be somewhere that was comfortable. Um, yeah. But most of the time, it was definitely the case that we were encouraging each other on. Uh, she kept singing to herself, which was helpful. <laughs> I don't know if that was a sarcastic helpful or not, but I think that's cute. But I think that after 57 days, I might not find it cute anymore. <laughs> no, it was cool um, because it was her way of dealing with things. It was her way of yeah. um, pushing herself on. It was If she sung to herself, then she could block out all of the bad stuff that was she was thinking yeah. of all the bad stuff that was happening. And the more that she sang to herself, the more she was walking. And the more she was walking, mm. the more she was going somewhere nicer. Yeah. And so following on from that bit, what was the absolute best bit of your hike then? What was your high point? I mean, I could say the end, but that would be really trite and metaphorical. <laughs> um, I would say... There's two things, and they're both both things that happened on the Pennine Way. The best day of the hike was actually it was a pretty long day. It was about a 21 mile hike in the Yorkshire Cumbria area from Middleton in Teesdale to Dufton. But although it was a long day, we walked past some very absolutely stunning scenery of the kind that I wasn't actually aware existed up there. Uh, so we passed three waterfalls. Uh, low force, high force, cauldron snout. And the latter of the waterfalls required scrambling up rocks by the side of it that, you know, a couple of years ago I wouldn't have done. Um, yeah. Let alone do it with a heavy backpack. So, you know, it, it, it's good for my own personal improvement. Uh, and then the end of it was a place called High Cup Nick, which is this rounded valley that uh, looks out over towards the Lake District and the Irish Sea. And because the sun sinks in the west, what we've got at the end, uh, sort of late on in the day, is a bright sky, clear blue sky, a couple of clouds, the sun shining just in the right place that lit up the entire valley. And you could just see a, a mass of green and blue just going straight down towards the sea. It's quite an impressive um, vista. Beautiful, yeah. Yes. So, I mean, that, that was the prettiest of days. Um, probably the. the <laughs> the most positive day was the last day on the Pennine Way. So the second to last day was a really long day. It was a 20-odd miler. Um, it was a little slog over the Cheviot Hills. So it was drizzly, it was foggy, it was cold. We overnighted in a bothy or a, um, it's a mountain rescue hut, basically, uh, that was on the England-Scotland border. Uh, a couple of things broke in my backpack, and there were four of us. So there was me, there was Becky, and there was two other Pennine Way hikers called Simon that we'd met early on and we ended up kind of hiking with. They were both um, called Simon. They were both called Simon. We called one, oh. of, them Simon. We called one of them Simon 1 and the other one Simon 2 um, <laughs> because of when we met them. Uh, I was going to say, did they argue over who got to be Simon number two? <laughs> no, 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 no. Simon was always Simon. And then when we met the other Simon, Simon became Simon 1 and the new Simon became Simon 2. <laughs> um. Uh, so we were in this we we're in this hut. We were actually in this hut as well with two race marshals. Um, at the same time as we were finishing the Pennine Way, there was the ultra marathon um, spine race taking place where people decide to run the entire length of the Pennine Way. Um, yeah, it's 250 odd miles and they do it in less than four days. Yes. So uh... we, we did it in 15 or 16 um, because, you know, nothing says wouldn't it be fun to see what happens like running that length of time and not sleeping mm. um anyway <laughs> so, <laughs> they were actually the race marshals were telling us about that that once because they did they, they do it every year they marshal every year at that point and once there was this chap that was so dehydrated and so hallucinating so much that despite that hook being seven miles from the end of a 250 mile race they pulled him out of the race. Oh, that would be <laughs> devastating, wouldn't it? Yeah. Imagine. The, the impression that I get is that he was so bad that he didn't realise. Oh, gosh. Yeah, his own safety. I mean, that's the thing. You've got, you, yeah. you know, I mean, it's bad enough hiking it, making sure that you're, you're safe and comfortable, but having run it in... Honestly, I wouldn't want to drive that far 
to be honest. Maybe <laughs> I'm lazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we were in that hut. And then the next morning, it was still foggy, it was still cloudy. And we set off down the hill towards the end or towards Kirkyadham. And about 200 metres down the hill from the Bothy, the skies cleared, the sun started shining, it got warm, the air was dry, and it was almost as if, like, the, the whole of the Pennine Way was going, all right, I've thrown everything at you that I can, and you're still here. Well done, you've won. And <laughs> although I never felt at any point that we wouldn't complete the hike, that was the point that I realised that we would. Yeah. Because having got that far, we'd gone two-thirds of the way through the journey. All we had left to do was the whole of Scotland. And having done the most difficult bit, we felt, okay, there are, it's, 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 I'm not saying it's going to be easy from here on in, but I, we didn't see any reason why we wouldn't be able to finish from here. Yeah. So is there anything that you wish you had known before you set out or anything that you would do differently in hindsight now that you've done it? Yeah. Don't run barefoot with a backpack on. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know because I don't think we knew what to expect. So I didn't yeah. really have expectations. So I think if I set out to do things differently, it would have been a different hike with different experiences, different highs and different lows. So I don't think so. Mm. Um, I think we did the route pretty much as we intended to do. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything that we got. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying we've got anything right or got anything wrong, but I don't, think, I don't think there's much that we would do differently. I think we packed correctly. Um, I think our logic was sound. Our reasoning was sound. Um, I mean, there's little things that we could have changed, but I don't think they matter. Yeah. So how, how did it feel to finish it? then was it all worth it in the end oh uh, i thought it was a bit of an anticlimax in all honesty really <laughs> yeah it's like, it was like you know a couple of miles from the finish we saw the lighthouse that we were aiming for yeah. um it's a question of all right so we, we, we're there we've we're there we've seen it and even for a few miles before that i was doing things like okay so we've only got 10 miles to get you know, I, I run that on a regular basis. Mm. Okay, there's only five kilometres to go. That's a park run. With this, we're only a park run away from finishing. So I was, I was in my head. I was constantly saying how further, how much distance we had to go. And then we got to the road that the lighthouse was on, and we walked up the road, and then we got to the lighthouse, and we touched the lighthouse, and then we walked beyond it to the very edge of the land, and we looked out to sea, and then we walked back a bit. We camped up near the lighthouse, had a small glass of port that I'd bought in Fort William three days earlier and just camped out for one last night. And then the next day we just went on our merry way diff to separately to different places. It, it, it didn't feel big. I think part of the reason why it didn't feel big was because Aldermerkin Lighthouse isn't anywhere in particular. There's nothing mm. around. Literally, there's nothing. The nearest village is seven miles away. And also because we were on our own. So there was no welcoming committee. There was yeah, no sort of, to celebrate with you. Yeah. There was no celebrations. There was no party. It was just like, all right, we've done it now. Yeah. What now? And I suppose as well, 57 days is a really long time. And so it must have taken you quite a long while to sort of process everything that you'd gone through on that hike together. I mean. And I let it sink in. I don't know if we did. Because the day after we finished, Becky disappeared off to hike some mountains in Fort William with a couple of friends of hers. And then I went further west. So I then took a week and a bit traveling around the Outer Hebrides, backpacking. Bit of camping. You don't understand the concept of rest, do you? <laughs> no. I, I, ha I had a rest day. I had one day in Oban in between times where I did nothing. But then I just carried on because I was in the area. I thought, might as well just go out and explore more of Scotland than I'd mm. never been to. So. We kind of got back home about two weeks later, by which time two weeks had passed. So it wasn't mm. directly in our mindset. Yeah. Um, so am I right in thinking that you basically decided to do the big east to west coast hike on a bit of a whim after a chat in the pub? Uh, kind of. 
<laughs> can you see yourself doing something similar in the future? Have you got another big hike or physical challenge in mind? Or the thing with this challenge was that it, it was it's been it had been in my head for a while. Um, mm. I kind of always wanted to do something like it, and I figured that Lands End to John Grapes was old hat, boring, and everyone does it. And also, Lands End to John Grapes isn't anything special. It's going from somewhere that isn't the most southerly or westerly point of Great Britain to somewhere that isn't the most northerly or easterly point of Great Britain. So in a sense, it's kind of pointless. It's kind of one of those things that people do for no apparent reason. Um, well, would... Those were the most southern and northern parts nope. of... Are they not? No. Nope. Why does everybody do that hike then? <laughs> uh, I have genuinely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> The most southerly point is Lizard Point, which isn't that far from Land's End, but it's still significantly far enough. And the most northerly point is, I believe, Dunnet Head, which is about 10 miles from John O'Groats. Um, yeah. I know. In it. I feel cheated by that, to be honest. <laughs> and so, so you're not in a big hurry to do another well, massive? Well, the thing is, I've, I'd always wanted to do something like that that meant something. And then I went to the the Yes Tribes Yesterval Festival back in October 2018, full of very, you know, motivational people doing things exactly like this. So I said, right, I am going to do this now. So when I came back from Yesterval, I met up with Becky in a pub and said, basically, have you ever wanted to do a long distance hike? And then Becky said, I've always wanted to do Land's End to John O'Groats. And then I said, hold that thought, got a better idea. Um, and then by the end of that, evening in the pub which was the station hotel in Hooknot for the record um we had pretty much planned out a basic concept a basic route plan um basic principles like we need we we have to walk the Pennine Way we have to walk the West Highland Way these are non-negotiables uh and things like that so from that early stage it was very much where we designed it in a pub and then when we came to plan things a bit more it was always in a pub because they're just convenient places to set out and do stuff. Yeah. And they're good places to sort of um, break up your big hikes as well. So Yes, absolutely. Um, you asked if I can see myself doing something similar. Um, yeah. Probably nothing on that scale, but, I mean, long-distance hikes intrigue me. One of the footpaths we trundled along in Scotland while, for a bit was the Southern Upland Way across the Scottish Lowlands. We only did it for about we, – we, we, we wild camped on a hill somewhere. Uh, on mm. that path, but we're only on the path for about two days. Um, but the whole path is about 215, 220 miles long. But it's also not that strenuous because a lot of it is over old um, cattle driving roads. So mm. unlike the Pennine Way, which goes, oh, there's a hill there. Let's climb to the top of it. The Southern Upland Way and related roads just go, oh, there's a hill there. Let's go round it because it's easier for mm. the cattle. Uh, you know, yeah. a sensible footpath. Um, and so that would be quite fun and quite I think I'd quite like to do that. Uh, other things, I, the idea of an ultramarathon does intrigue me, not the spy race because I'm not insane. <laughs> but, you know, something like a 50 miler or something would be quite cool. Um, one of the people I follow on Instagram recently broke a couple of world records. One of them was for the longest distance run barefoot in 24 hours. Uh, and the other one was for the most consecutive barefoot marathon, half marathons, rather. Mm. Do you think you might be into the idea of doing some barefoot record breaking? It's very niche. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I think I think they've they've kind of got that bit sewn up at the moment. But it, yeah. it, it's amazing what there are world records for. But I mean, yeah. let, let, ultramarathons. The idea intrigues me because what I didn't realise about ultramarathons, and I suppose this makes perfect sense. And one of the one of the podcasts I used to listen to was all about um, you know sort of hiking and ultramarathons and things like that and one of the things i didn't realize was that you don't run them yeah they mostly um run walk run walk type things rather yeah. than yes. yeah because yeah. so, you couldn't run for 24 hours surely yeah so i mean this thing when when the winner of the spine race um passed us in fact all of the spine races passed us um she was basically it looked like she was just out for a casual jog. She wasn't going that quickly. Yeah. And I think we worked out that her average speed was in like three miles an hour. Yeah, I mean, you'd have I, to do I that to conserve your energy, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I can walk three miles an hour quite comfortably for a while, not to that extent, but I can certainly walk three miles an hour for a, you know, I could probably, I don't know if I could, but I'd like to think that I could probably do at least a 30 miler at that pace uh, now. And do you um, think that's what drives you to give these sorts of things a go is just the wanting to see if you can? Yes, very much so. Um, because I find it interesting what I'm capable of. Mm. Probably more than I think. Yeah, almost definitely. And yeah. um, you and Becky did end up raising a few hundred quid actually for um, Mind, the mental health yeah. charity during your hike. Um, is that something that you like contacted them about in advance and let them know that you were doing, or do you just sort of donate that to them when you've finished? Like if somebody else was planning on doing something similar, is that something that you have to prearrange with them? We do. I mean, I would say we prearranged it, but let's face it, Becky prearranged that she handled all of that. <laughs> um, we, I mean, that, that Mind actually gave us T-shirts. So on the Norfolk Coast Path at the very start, we wore them. And mm. one of the reasons for that was so that we could gather in, um, I was going to say contributions. Contributions is the wrong word, oh, but I can't think of them. Donations, that's the right word. Yeah. So we could gather in donations as we passed because then people would see us with yeah. the mind t-shirts on they'd see us with we becky created a kind of almost like a tea towel thing that basically said that what we were doing we were hiking across great britain so that means that people could stop us we'd have a chat and then they would donate to us and then we would pass that money to mine eventually um i think we raised about 1200 quid in total uh, but the thing about the norfolk coast path was that it was warm and so there were a lot of people around and mm. it was close to the civilization, so we passed through a couple of towns. So it was easy to have those conversations. It was easy to get donations. Once we'd left yeah. Kings Lynn and headed inland, we were on footpaths going through the middle of nowhere. Um, basically, from Peterborough to Gala Shields, which is about 235 miles or 380 kilometres, apart from Nottingham, we didn't pass through any town of any significance whatsoever. Everything we passed mm. through was literally a village. So there was no one to get the money from. So we kind of stopped wearing the T-shirts because they were just, that was getting too sweaty. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but yeah, we, 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 um, yeah, we raised money for Mind um, and we arranged it beforehand and we told them what we were doing and they were quite happy to work with us. Oh, fantastic. So if I, if I was planning some kind of big hike, if I weren't so lazy, I should probably contact the charity that I wanted it for in advance because they might be able to help me raise more yeah. for them. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and the reason we chose Mind was fairly obviously, really, because both of us do not have the best of mental health. Yeah. And one of the one of the ways that we both handle our mental health issues is by hiking. Yeah, you know, getting outside is is often how we feel better in ourselves. You've spoken about that quite a lot on your blog, haven't you, about um, getting outside for your mental health and dealing day to day with things like dyspraxia and stuff like that. Yes. And it, it's, um, it's also one of the reasons why I like to hike barefoot as well, because, it, it, as I say, Becky did even notice that improvement in my uh, mentality when I was and I could be because it helps me relax. Yeah. You're more yourself when you're barefoot. Yes. Um. I've actually, I have run out of questions for you. Um, can you think of anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to talk about, about your East to West Coast hike? I can't think of anything. Um, I'm sure there are probably things that are very important that I haven't mentioned, but I can't. We will make a note of them and we'll come back to this topic again when we've exhausted all of our other spaces topics. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, what is, but, the next, um, what is the next topic for our next space? Do we know? I I was just about to say, our previous space, for those who have missed it, was on hiking in general. Um, and that yeah. will be up on barefoot-backpacker.com soonish. If It might have just disappeared from Twitter. But our next space should be in about two weeks. And yeah. that one will sort of follow on from this one in that it's all about hometown travel and local travel. Oh. Um, which I'm quite interested in because I would like to know how to treat my local city as if I'm travelling to it. Um, that's interesting to me. Um, but in the meantime, over the next two weeks, <laughs> um, you know where I live. That's why you're laughing. <laughs> I, I know where you live. And I, I've been to places that you don't know exist in your city. <laughs> well, exactly. Yes, you know my city better than I do now that you've explored it from a travel perspective. It didn't um, take exploring. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, it's, at least it is difficult to get lost. I live in Milton Keynes. It's on a grid system. Uh, that's meant to make it difficult to get lost. I get lost very, very easily. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, over the next two weeks, um, if you miss us terribly, you can follow the Barefoot Backpacker um, on their website, which is barefoot-backpacker.com. Um, and you can also find um, their podcast there or on your podcast aggregator of choice, which is Travel Tales Beyond the Brochure. Um, Barefoot Backpacker is also on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and here on Twitter, where they are RTW Barefoot. And if you have a look in their bio, um, you will see a little link to their Linktree page, and that has everywhere that you can follow them online. You can sign up to their newsletter as well, where you can have their latest blog post, um, podcast episode, and spaces broadcast sent directly to your inbox. And that will also tell you how you can get involved with the podcast yourself as well. Yes. <laughs> I always feel like I've missed something out there, but I don't think I have. <laughs> no, I mean, at some point I will uh, start getting into things like YouTube, but not yet. Yes, but um, there is actually a link to your YouTube up on your Linktree page as well for anybody that wants to go and see your very early days YouTube videos. But we'll be relaunching that one soon as well. Yeah, at some point when I feel comfortable in front of a camera. We will get you there. So after all this time, I still don't know how to end spaces. So I'm just going to wish you a very good evening. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will see you in about two weeks. Go away. Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty Sorry sure that, that was directed at text. Oh, that happened to us before as well, didn't it? But, yeah, it we're did. just about come to the end now anyway. So we will see you again in another two weeks. Groovy. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass Bonus by Kai Engel, which is available by the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. The podcast has a Facebook group at travel.tales.beyond.brochure, and I have a Patreon for access to rare extra content. That's patreon.com slash traveltalesbeyondbrochurepod. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now.